Welcome to planetmullins.com. And welcome everybody to another episode of the Planet Mullins podcast. Today I've got some incredible keyboard player slash composer slash award-winning guys. And this is kind of a cool example of modern technology because we've got uh, Ricky Cage. Is that is it Cage or Cash? It's Cage, like the board Cage. Okay, Ricky <laughs> Cage uh, from India. What city are you in, Ricky? I'm in uh, I'm in Bangalore. It's in south of India. Oh, I love Bangalore. I was there uh, with Hubert Laws. And then we also have from New York City, Mr. Michael Whalen. Right from the Bronx, man. Come on. Come on. It's the Bronx, baby. That's it. I'm 25 and, uh, blocks from Yankee Stadium, baby. Come on. Yeah. Everyone's hey, waiting got, for Aaron Judge to hit that home run. Come on. I got my L.A. Dodgers hat on. And I know. Everyone just calm thing. down. Everyone just calm down. New York City, Los Angeles, and Bangalore, India. And uh, today... We're going to just dive right into this uh, brand new collaboration that you two amazing award winners, uh, Ricky with two Grammys and Michael with two Emmys. It's a new project called Imaginary Train. So uh, who wants to fill me in on how this got going? Waylon. So uh, Imaginary Trains is uh, my latest solo album. Um, It's an album that I've wanted to make for 40 years. Uh, I mean, really since the very first time I ever heard Tangerine Dream. So the- the it's very much inspired by German electronica, especially Tangerine Dream, Kraftwerk, uh, Klaus Schulze. There's there's a whole kind of clutch of people, but mostly Tangerine Dream. And I remember going to the movies and seeing Risky Business, Tom Cruise. Okay. And, um, and there he is on the L train in Chicago with Rebecca De Mornay, and they're getting it on and they're doing that thing. And that track happens. And you're like, what is that music? And that was this moment. I was just like, I had no idea. And I, and it was funny because I had asked one of my, 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 my little synthesizer friends in the eighties, you know, about Tangerine Dream. And they were like, oh my God, they're huge. And, you know, and I just felt like I got, I was late to that party. So I got caught up on them and I have been a really lifelong fanatic of their music and so you know and i've done other electronic records you know i did sacred spaces in 2020 and i and i did dream cycle you know in 2018 and it was and those records were i don't think as focused on a sort of uh sort of a artistic aesthetic as much as imaginary trains was okay. um and, and the title comes from both um, German electronic music seems to be absolutely obsessed with travel and trains and all of that. So that's very much in it. But also as a child, I went to boarding school. So I went to, I, my, my parents lived in Washington, DC and my boarding school was in Wilmington, Delaware. So I went back and forth between my parents' home and Delaware all the time. And I mean, like every other weekend. So that was, was an actual train. That was an actual train. And so, like, I have a love of traveling by train. I have traveled by train all over Europe. I have traveled by train in Japan. I have traveled by train, like, all over the United States. The next one is Ruthie and I want to take the train from the East Coast of Canada to the West Coast of Canada. Like, I got to do that. So I'm, I, I love trains because I love the idea of being safe, sitting down, and moving all at the same time. 
So I'm going to uh, ask you to jump in here and uh, just ask you, how, how did you and Michael end up working on Michael's solo project together? So I've been a fan of Michael for a while now and uh, uh, love his brand of electronic music and, uh, you know, and his uh, his obsession with synths. Uh, so I not only follow his music, but I follow his Instagram page where he has all these amazing pictures of synths and the history behind, you know, these uh, these amazing instruments. Right. And, uh, you know, and uh, we've been in touch for a while online and, uh, you know, and he was working on this new album and he uh, showcased a song to me that is Across the World to Be With You. And uh, I listened to the song, absolutely loved the tonality, loved the, uh, the composition, the instrumentation, the tones of every instrument. And, you know, and he just asked me to, uh, you know, to play around with the track and make a remix. And uh, that's what I did. I made a remix of it. And uh, after making the remix, I'm so fortunate that Michael liked my work that he actually incorporated some of the elements that I put into the, uh, that I created for the remix. He put that into the original version of the track. So I got to be a part of uh, the original version too. <laughs> yeah, uh, Ricky's remix, Ricky's remixes. Uh, I I don't know. I mean, there's there seems to be many different kinds of like styles of remix, and 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 Ricky, you know, called me in that sort of beautiful sort of like, hey, did I do okay kind of thing, and I'm like. It's fantastic. What are you talking about? <laughs> you know, in the middle of the night, I'm like grabbing tracks from the remix and I'm like, you know, the album's not quite done yet. Let me see. Plop, 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 plop. And it, and it just, it was, uh, it, I don't know, throwing an acoustic instrument in such a synthesized environment was a revelation. Mm. It was just, I, it, you know, he had this beautiful flute performance and it just, it just took all of the electronic stuff and just put it in the most beautiful context. And I just, and I, and I didn't use the whole performance because I, I wanted to kind of try to save it for the remix, but, uh -huh. but it just, it just put it all in such a gorgeous way and it just put such a nice frame around it that all of a sudden the track just started breathing. and. So, um... and when you guys did this, I saw uh, in the promo stuff that Michael sent over, I, I saw a picture of you two guys, I think in Michael's studio in New York. Is that right? True. That's okay, true. so with this, we, were you guys doing this in person or did you do no. it on the internet? No, he came, he came and visited me. He came, He was in New York for a UN thing and he, okay. came, he came to the Bronx because he is that brave. And, uh, yeah. and then... <laughs> He visited me and it was, uh, it was great. It was a great time. And then how long ago was that? Uh, July. Okay. So um, imaginary trains. What, uh, you know, a lot of people are not going to know who Tangerine Dream was, and I don't really know how to describe them. How, what genre of music is this project? Uh, I would say it's ambient, electronic, new age, but, Small N, small A. <laughs> so like in the like like in a Grammy world, it would be new age or chant or ambient, but um but in the world of like kind of you know Spotify and Apple music, it's it's ambient music. Okay. Yeah, what I would call it is uh, melodic ambient. That's what I would call it. Oh ah. <laughs> so there's a lot of ambient. Ambient music that is uh, really engaging and very interesting, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, because usually ambient music, I mean, I think back to that when it first started kind of surfacing and Brian Eno's name was the one that always got associated with that. And 
for the uh, people watching the show or listening to it on the podcast, ambient stuff doesn't usually have a melody. It's just kind of like a, a backgroundy, floaty, sonic uh, experience. You know, so yeah, a lot of people use it for meditation, for example. I would say that if you could certainly start with Brian, because he really coined the phrase ambient music and, you know, like what he did for music for films and all that, all those early records in the seventies. And then it's really evolved because I think there is, there's electronic music that goes into dance music that goes into chill. And then there's 5,000 different variations of that. And so, yes, this is done electronically, but so is most pop music. And so is a lot of jazz. And so in a world where so much music is being done electronically, whatever that means, uh-huh. uh, you know, ambient music is like a state of mind more than anything else. It's not like, oh, you use a synthesizer. It must be ambient. It's more like um, what I want to create for the end user is I want to create a sense of calm, a sense of relaxation, a sense of, because I mean, what, you know, uh, Brian was very Brian when he coined this phrase in the 70s. He basically wanted to have sound sort of drown out like, you know, you know, London. You know, he wanted to, you know, like, I don't want to hear the city. I just want to have these tones come in and just sort of create an environment. I think where things have been have developed is sure, this music can be sort of sonic wallpaper or whatever. But at the same time, it's going to have a little contour to it and it's going to have a harmonic thing to it and it's going to have a melodic thing to it. And so I, I, in that way, in the 40, 50 years, it, it, it really has evolved. That's really cool. Well, Ricky, I wanted to um, just congratulate you since I've never, you know, I've had Waylon on the show before, um, never had you on the show before, but I wanted to congratulate you on some of these other collaborations you're doing too. I saw something recent with, uh, Stuart Copeland, can you give us just like a Cliff Notes version of that real quick? Yeah, so uh, uh, Stuart Copeland has been my sort of like my childhood hero and my childhood idol uh, growing up. And uh, I got an opportunity to work with him once in 2016. and yeah. uh, But I never got to actually interact with him because all the interactions happened through artist managers and so on and so forth. And uh, in 2020, at the beginning of the pandemic, I was starting work on a new album, which was Divine Tides, which went on to be called Divine Tides. And I wanted to work with a collaborator. And I thought, okay, let me like, you know, reach and, uh, you know, call uh, Stuart and check if he would be interested in being a part of the album. Sent him small bits of music and he was immediately interested in co-writing the whole album with me. And he wanted me to start the album from scratch, you know, and uh, and start from the ground up with him. So that's what we did. We worked on the album for a year and uh, never got to meet him in person, just like how Michael and I collaborated. Uh, did not get to meet him at all because it was the pandemic and we got nominated for the Grammy for that album. And, you know, and I still not met him. And I met him just a week before uh, the actual Grammy Awards ceremony and, uh, you know, cool. and uh, got to hug him for the first time. And, uh, and we ended up, uh, you know, winning uh, the Grammy Award together for that particular album. So that it, it was a beautiful experience because Stuart, you know, he's known for being a rock drummer. And uh, for this album, what he did was that uh, he had collected all these instruments through his decades of traveling, you know, through all these uh, various countries around the world. He collected all these ethnic and these exotic instruments. Right. And uh, for the first time, he got the opportunity to actually pull them out and mic them and actually play with them. So that's what he did on this album. That's so cool, man. Well, I see both of you are sitting in uh, 
very nice studios with lots of keyboards. Uh, Wayland, <laughs> can you play me just uh, three bars of the melody to imaginary trains, possibly? Oh, my God. Uh, 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 no, uh, I gotta, I gotta put it together. Wait, hang on. Um, you know, what, you know, what's funny. It's like uh, somebody was talking to me about like, how would you do that live? Right. That's what I was going to ask is if you guys are right. so, so, so in April, I did this streaming concert and it became this, how in the world am I going to do this album live? And uh, so I went to this place in Philadelphia called EMIAP, the Electronic Music Education and Preservation Project. Uh And they have, I don't even have a number. It's hundreds, maybe thousands of synthesizer instruments. It is the largest private collection of synthesizers in the world. Wow. And so I got to use anything I wanted in the building and I got to do this concert of I do five pieces from the album and then I did one new piece and then I did two pieces on piano and um it it was a really amazing experience to try to figure out what I was going to do from the album Mm. and and like was I going to kind of replace all the stuff I did um but the the coolest part was to say okay well what do I want to use in a world where I can use anything what am I going to use so I used 13 keyboards and so uh, a couple of them were uh, Keith Emerson's Modular Moog, the one he traveled with, with Emerson Lake Palmer. One of them was one of the two Yamaha GX1s in the world that still work, uh, which is this three manual sort of organ synthesizer thing, which is incredibly cool. Um, and then I used one of the mini Moogs that I used was serial number 16, meaning it was the 16th one made ever in the world. Nice. So my guess is that like, Bob, you know, Bob Moog was like, you know, turning the screwdriver himself and building it. And it was, and it was a really incredible experience to have these instruments like kind of at my fingertips. And then I get to kind of recontextualize my music. So um, it was really the first time I've taken my electronic music and done a sort of large scale performance of it. I've done pieces like I, like I played it like the ZMR concert and I've done pieces, but I've never done like an hour of electronic music on that scale before. Uh-huh. And that, that was really fun. And so that that's available on YouTube now too. So if people want to see that. Well, that's, yeah, that's quite a stunning concert. That's quite a stunning concert because uh, sonically and visually, that is quite a beautiful concert. I'd watched it live when it was, uh, when it was broadcast for the first time. Thank you. Yeah, I wanted to uh, I wanted to just uh, toss it over to Ricky for a minute. Do you have a particular because, uh, you know, Waylon is one of these guys that we in the biz, we call him a gearhead. So a gearhead is a guy that, you know, if you got 12 keyboards, you got to pick up the 13th one because, man, there's going to be something new with that. You never know, Rob. You never know. <laughs> Ricky, do you have a particular keyboard you like to compose on or use the most is it the piano or a synth or logic pro or what tell me about that so now i've become pretty boring because uh the thing is that i use only controllers now i don't use uh, the keyboards and i've got a decent collection a, a small collection rather of some analog synths i've got a couple of german and a couple of russian um uh, like ancient analog synths uh, uh-huh. but i don't uh, end up like there's one right over here this one's a russian one 
And uh, but they don't end up getting used much uh, because uh, you know because I've become pretty impatient as a person, you know. So uh, I end up using a lot of controllers, and I use a lot of libraries, and I use a lot of samples uh, from the computer. Uh, and okay. I try to make my own tones, uh, you know, using all of that and experimenting. And even for my live concerts, um, I've I've become pretty lazy in that way also, where I don't carry my keyboards for my live concerts. I just ask the organizers and the the backline, you know, to give me about four or five keyboards, and uh-huh. I connect all of that into you know into main stage on my laptops, and uh, okay. you know, so all my tones come out from my laptops, and so I just have to carry. Uh, two laptops uh, for all my concerts and everything else is sorted out. <laughs> that is really one of the things that I really have enjoyed about the modern uh, music technology advancing to where we're at now is it is really convenient because uh, I've got, I'm a Roland cloud guy. So I have all the Roland cloud stuff and uh, a few of the standalones. Um, Akai, which was, uh, very much a part of my life uh, with the MPC 60 back in the day, you can download an MPC uh, 60 for free from Akai's website. Now yep. it works great. It sounds amazing. It has a great feel to it. And then there's all the instruments and logic and all this stuff. So, you know, Michael, once you, you know, tried doing all this stuff and you've got 13 different instruments, then what's your process as far as like filtering it all down or making it all kind of work? Like do you, because some producers and I'm one of these kind of guys when I'm working for hire is I'll just do a lot. Like if it's 13 tracks, I will just cram a lot of stuff in there and then let the client mute and chop and sample and, and do whatever. Uh, Is that how you do it or how do you do it? Um, I I think, when I'm about to do an album, I will spend a couple of months developing sounds. And so I'll create what I call a palette. And so for this album, for Imaginary Trains, I had a palette of about 700 new sounds I created. Nice. So, it, and it was, it was across a bunch of things. It was across the physical ones that I have. And then I have, a, I have, pretty much every synthesizer library you've ever heard of in your entire life, plus the Roland stuff and the Arturia stuff. And so I'll make sounds on whatever is going to work the best. Um, but one of the things that I, I partition the sound making thing from the writing music thing, because so what I'll do is I'll have all the sounds laid out. I'll know where everything is. I'll have, I, I'm very organized. And then I will write the music and it, I'll know that it's going well if the music is just sort of just kind of happening. And so it took me months to put together the sounds and it probably took me two and a half, maybe three weeks to lay out all the music for Imaginary Trains. Okay. Well, I noticed that um, on your last project, which I, I really loved, um, you had some incredible videos and you said that you did all of that video uh, stuff yourself and Ricky, your videos are some of the most amazing ones I've ever seen with the drone footage and you know these amazing natural landscapes. Ricky, do you edit your video stuff or do you have a team of people that do that as producers? How does that work for you? Yeah, I did. Uh, I mean, that uh, I'm very blessed to have a fantastic uh, you know video team. 
so fantastic filmmakers because I do a lot of work uh, with uh, natural history documentaries. So these filmmakers, uh, you know, they, uh, you know, they, uh, they're good friends of mine. So that's why they go out and they film for me. And I've realized that through my career, uh, that uh, the more I get involved uh, in the filmmaking process, the worse uh, the video turns out. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so that's why I've realized that, you know, just, I just have to brief uh, the filmmakers strongly enough and then, you know, and then just trust them to do their job and look at the final product and, uh, you know, and, uh, and just accept it the way it is. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> so between the two of you guys, um, how many recording projects have you done? Because I saw uh, in the promo stuff, Ricky's done 3,500 uh, jingles and commercials and Whalen's got 36 albums out and then all the movies and everything. Would you guys venture a guess that you've been involved in 200, 300, 400,000 projects uh, together uh, if we lump it all in by now? Uh, I mean, I, I've probably done as many commercials as Ricky has. Um, I've done about 850 TV shows here in the United States. Oh my God. Uh, because I've also done themes and I've done, you know, I mean, I did all this stuff for Oprah. And so they took my, they took my library and they, they probably turned that into a hundred shows. Wow. So, uh, so there was that, um, uh, you know, it, it's really interesting because in my mind, I don't think of it in terms of shows anymore. I think of it in terms of hours of music because the minute it goes out into the world, you have this weird choice of like, does this go into your library? And now do you go and like find like a secondary or a tertiary way to license it? Or like, how else are you going to exploit your music? Uh -huh. so, so for me, I look at it and say, okay, well, I've got many, many hundreds, maybe thousands of hours of music and, you know, and what life does it have afterwards? Like, here's a good example. Um, I, I licensed about half of my existing library at the time to Audible. And so people oh. say to me all the time, hey, I was listening to a book and they said music by Michael Whalen. And they, and you know, I, I get that email probably a hundred times a year. And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, they just took a track and they put it on the beginning of the book. So, you know, I think one of the responsibilities of a composer now is to be looking for multiple ways to be exploiting your music. Right. Well, that's something that I think is not very easy to break into because uh, I get those questions all the time from students of mine saying, you know, how do I break into, say, sync licensing? Do, do either of you guys have any guidelines uh, about how to do that? Ricky, do you have thoughts? Um, so since uh, I live in India, it's quite different over here. Um, over here, you know, the, our collection rights societies are not as strong as they are in America. So in India, we do not have much of uh, sync licensing. It's usually outright buyouts and it's, uh, it's uh, creating music from scratch for a particular purpose. Ah. But when it comes to America, the thing is that I've got, again, a library of my commercial music that I've sort of repurposed the music that uh, where the rights have returned back to me. And, uh, you know, and I've got a publisher out of Singapore who is uh, constantly, you know, uh, pushing that music for commercials all over the world. And that's how I get my sync licensing. So there's very little involvement from my side. Uh, okay. It's just, uh, I just uh, figure out things that show up on my royalty statement. And there are a couple of uh, television soundtracks that I've done, which have found its way on to multiple other television shows. Uh, so that's what, so all of that, uh, luckily for me, that happens automatically. 
but uh, nevertheless uh, nevertheless like in america uh, uh, i mean that you have it uh, uh, very good with uh, bmi and with ascap and with csac and stuff like that because in india it's uh, even though we do have a collection rights society it's pretty much a scam in india so it's quite bad <laughs> right well you know i think um uh i'm i'm thinking back to how many episodes of oprah my family has watched and how many years it was on and uh, i would imagine if the three of us get together, dinner is going to be on Wayland. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah, I mean, because, and then I did all the music for As the World Turns for four years. And so that's 44 minutes of music six days a week on network television. Wow. Plus, I had 12 themes on the air at the same time, including Good Morning America. And I had Top of the Hour PBS, Top of the Hour HBO, stuff like that. So at a certain point, you know, your performance royalties come in, it's a lot of money. So, you know, I, the other part of this that people don't know as much of is that I'm also a music supervisor. So, and then there's projects where I'm also the composer and the music supervisor at the same time, which right. is because you license something and then as the composer, you do key agreement and then you know, things are very nice and it has like a nice kind of like uh, cohesive sound to it. But I think, you know, I, I think the key to licensing for new people are relationships. So go to film festivals, meet people. And what you want to do is you really want to go there as a problem solver. You don't want to go there selling music because you don't know what they want. So a director, a producer, an editor say, hey, I work with music. What are you working on? What's your problem? Tell me what your problem is and then figure out how you're going to solve the problem. Then Very you point then you start then you start becoming indispensable because um i i didn't seek to become a music supervisor i became a music supervisor because i'm an expert at copyright law i'm really good at negotiating and the fact that i'm a composer means i have a slightly i, I think i have a pretty good ear um and, and i'm a very good music supervisor so um, right that came out of conversations where my film friends and TV friends were saying, Hey, I need X. I'd be like, okay, I'll help you. And well, so you, really, want yeah. become, you want to become that person. I think it's always really solid, uh, great advice that I, I get from you, Michael and uh, Ricky. Thank you so much today for uh, taking and making the time to come on the show. We're up against the clock here, fellas. So um, any last words? I mean, I, I'll just throw it out there. Congratulations on, I guess, your first collaboration. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's called Imaginary, called it's Imaginary Trains. And uh, I'll put in the um, in all of the description boxes everywhere the links to the music. And what I would love to do as a bucket list thing is for the three of us to get together and play. That would be really cool. That would be really cool. <laughs> I would, uh, I would love that because we're all kind of coming from different places, and uh, you know, it would just really be a blast. So maybe we can do that. Yeah, and you know, Rob, you're the monster player of the three of us. So you know, <laughs> you know, you, you get to solo. We'll we'll comp behind you. It'll be good. Okay, it sounds good. <laughs> well, we're gonna wrap it up. Thanks everybody for checking out another episode of the Planet Mullins podcast. And we'll see you next time.